Our scripture reading for today is taken from the Gospel of Luke, 16th chapter. We continue to read parables that Jesus is giving in a series throughout these chapters in Luke to describe the texture of the kingdom of God. May God bless to us the reading of God's word. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man, the manager, was squandering his property. So he summoned the manager and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? And that one answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. The manager said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then the manager asked another, And how much do you owe? And that other replied, A hundred containers of wheat. And the manager said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master, the manager's master, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generations than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone they may welcome you into their eternal homes whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The word of the Lord. You can breathe out now. Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be receptive to thee. O God, our strength and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. Okay, let's play a little game or a little role-playing. I am a wealthy landowner. Now you know that is role-playing because I am not. 
but let's just pretend that I am. <coughs> no, excuse me. Now, I own so much land that I tenant it out. I farm it out. I have tenants on my land that farm parts of it and then pay me rent. Now, this could be the 21st century, but let's call it the first century. Now, this could be happening here, but let's say it's happening in ancient Palestine. Now, you, every one of you, is my manager. You go out and you take care of the tenants for me. You represent me. You uh, negotiate for me. You are, you, uh, you are my presence with my tenants. How you relate to them affects how they relate to me. Now, we are both governed by what's called the Mishnah in the first century, which is a, an elaborate commentary on scripture which goes to levels of detail about personal life and economic life and sets out the rules for our shared life together. The Mishnah is clear how all of this is supposed to happen. You are supposed to charge rent to my tenants, which is set and transparent, everyone knows. Now, I don't pay you to manage the land. They pay you. And so there is an additional amount on top of the rent that is paid to you, but it is a fair amount, and everyone knows what it is. The process is transparent and guided by the rules. Now, during the course of the year, the tenants tend to give you a little more in order to keep a good relationship and maybe curry favor and make sure you speak well of them to me. You get that? But that's also transparent. Everyone knows that happens, and it also comes within certain guidelines about how that works. But you, every single one of you who is my manager, got a little tempted of late. You've been doing a good job all along, and we've had a good relationship. But someone has come to me and told me that you've been cooking the books. I don't know how long you've been doing it, but you've been doing it long enough to make a difference. I don't know how you've been doing it. Maybe you have been telling my tenants that I'm charging more rent than I am and pocketing the difference. Maybe you've been insisting on more tips during the year than you're due and not telling me how that's going. Maybe you're telling them how awful I am so that you can curry favor with them. However you're doing it, you are profiting yourself at the expense of what's right. So I call you to my office. And you walk in and I tell you what's going on. And what do you do? Do you make excuses? Do you deny it all? Do you blame it on someone else, maybe that subcontractor you were using because I was getting more tenants than you could handle? Maybe you blame it on the system. Instead, you just remain silent. Remaining silent is an admission of guilt. And I say to you, you're done. Get your books, bring them in, you're done. And you, being as smart as you are, realize what you have done and in your silence 
also realize you have an opportunity to not burn a bridge, but to build a relationship. You have an opportunity, maybe for just a moment, to get it right. You have an opportunity to restore yourself, because I know, too, as an owner, that this really isn't you, but you still need to be held accountable. And so you, before the news spreads, before it goes out that you have been fired, you go to the key tenants on the property and you summon them to you as if you are still speaking for me. And you say to them, how much do you owe Wes? A hundred barrels of oil, uh, olive oil? Make it 50. And then you go to someone else. How about you? A hundred? Wheat? Bushels of wheat? Let's make it 80. And everything's square. You're good. Because the owner of the land has become generous and wants to be helpful. It's, inflation's high, after all, and he knows you need a break. And I get word of that. I get word that there's celebration afoot. I get word that people are talking about me in ways they haven't talked before. I get word that something's going on that everybody's happy about, and I call you back in a little suspicious and tell you what I've found out. My options, I could arrest you and have you jailed. But instead, I say to you, looking you in the eyes, well played. You got me. We will go on as you have done. And there is celebration. By the Mishnah, you should be in jail. By the Gospel, you're at a party. This parable has been called the most difficult parable to interpret in the New Testament. Scholars have argued about it for years. Often they argue because they try to get everything straight. They try to figure out why the master would praise this dishonest steward at one moment and then condemn him at another moment. They try to understand point by point how this all works within a logic of rules. But often missing the point that that's not how parables work. Parables just open up the world and possibilities to new things for us. Parables shatter our assumptions and redefine the terrain. I'm with Kenneth Bailey, who wrote that to the contrary of all the ways we've bent ourselves up to understand this parable, this parable simply gives us unforgettable insight into the nature of God and the predicament of humans and the ground of salvation. You see, in the line of parables, this one comes right after the parable of the prodigal son and his elder brother and father. If you know that parable, you know it ends with a great celebration and party to celebrate the return of a profligate prodigal son who never quite repented, but the father accepted back. This parable tells the same story, but just from a different angle. The parable of the dishonest steward is another facet of the jewel. For the key to this parable, you see, at least in the way I want to recommend reading it, is the steward's risky trust 
in the landowner's mercy. Similar to the prodigal son's trust in his father's mercy. This owner did have every right to put this dishonest manager in jail. And by the Mishnah rules, he should have. But instead, he only fired him without submitting him to public scorn or arrest. He tries to give him a chance to start a new life. And the steward just does just that, cleverly. By writing a new story that includes not just him, but the landowner and the tenants, and him in a new reconciled reality. This one that is now based on generosity and mercy and forgiveness of debt, rather than on rule-keeping and management and hidden corruption. Now, as I said, it could have gone differently. His clever move could have failed. That steward did not stop deserving punishment. I suppose like none of us here are really ever fully mended this side of paradise. And he could well have been punished even more severely for his follow-up scheme but after the landowner showed him mercy first off, our manager waged everything on that mercy and that that mercy wasn't a one-off thing. He didn't do that, I'd suggest, to take advantage of his employer's weakness or good nature. He did it to trust, to act, and to show that he knew where his salvation lies. What he did took guts, but his wisdom and his brashness was put in the way of goodness and generosity. He could have just talked a good game. He could have tried to skim more and take off before he's caught so he can run his grift somewhere else. But he did neither. Instead, he did right by everyone. And he represented his owner in a new way. He rebuilds relationship and shows the owner what he's capable of for the owner's sake. And his Lord gets it, accepts it, and honors the new reality that this clever manager, once an operator, now a partner, has created. So, if you're going to be mischievous, be mischievous at the service of love. If you're going to be mischievous, be mischievous on the side of mercy. If you're going to be mischievous, be mischievous for the sake of reconciliation. And you will be forgiven the world will be made new, and you will find new purpose in life, God's purpose. Father Elias Shakur is a Palestinian Melkite Catholic priest with Israeli citizenship who lives and works among Christians, Muslims, and Jews with ministry centered in a small village in Galilee. 
Now that's a complicated identity. Father Shakur is known for building schools, a college, and working for a just peace between people who are hostile toward each other. He has written books about his experience as a Palestinian and how his faith has driven his work. He has told the story of some years ago when tensions between Christians and Muslims in his village were beginning to grow. As an act of generosity and friendship, he began working with Muslim leaders in his village. To the surprise of many, one of the things he did was to actively help the growing Muslim community build a mosque. That kind of intergroup and interfaith support is very uncommon between faiths in that land. It broke decorum, it broke all kinds of rules. He knew that his village yet shared more in common than what divided them, and he wanted to shape a new community there. He did not redefine his Christian faith to do this. He did not rethink his confidence in Christ or his commitment to the church. He did not do this as a political stunt or a payoff of some kind. He did this as a wager on reconciliation, and he got called into the bishop's office dressed down and told why he could not do what he was doing. He, he was asked why he hadn't gone through proper channels or asked permission. He was accused of not following custom or decorum or precedent. He was challenged for setting an expectation that could come back to bite them. And then the bishop paused opened his own desk drawer, pulled out his checkbook, and made a donation. If you're going to be mischievous, be mischievous on the side of mercy. If you're going to be mischievous, be mischievous at the service of love. If you're going to be mischievous, be mischievous for the sake of reconciliation. A church I know, in a place I won't mention, lost a valued staff member to an unexpected death. It was well before his time. Sadness and questions rippled through. Why did this happen? When going through things related to his employment, even while the congregation was still grieving, it was discovered that despite his long history of good work, and unbeknownst to anyone, he had actually been embezzling, stealing an amount that would reach about $60,000 today. For that congregation, that was a lot of money. As you would expect, the administrative board was informed and options were explored and recrimination and challenge and demand for review of rules and processes began along with a desire to blame someone. Justice must be served. Perhaps his estate should be sued and his family informed. Perhaps the authorities should be called. But for sure, a decision needs to be made about how to approach this before all of this goes public even during this time of grief. The board met in a closed meeting to discuss the matter further and determine righteous steps forward. A while into that heated discussion, a member of the board raised her hand. Mr. Moderator, I wish to make a motion. 
The moderator swallowed hard with no idea what was coming. I move that the board forgive the personal loan that the church gave our employee last year to tend to his personal needs and to take no action regarding this with his family. And I also move that the board accept the anonymous gift that was recently given to restore church funds. After seconds of silence, the, mo the motion got a quizzical second. The one who made the motion went on. You all remember that loan, don't you? I'm just not sure how it never got into our minutes. But we'll acknowledge it now and get on with our grieving. And after some long and awkward silence, some other voices began to come in. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, of course, I, 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 I did forget about that loan. Oh, uh, of course, yes, the loan. I'd forgotten, but now I remember, so grateful the congregation could help. And the motion passed without dissent. The next day, the member who made the motion came into the office with her checkbook in hand. The idea of what it means to follow Jesus and the new way of being that Jesus wants to help us see is about every part of our lives. It's not just about our checkbook. The point is the same. But a question can be answered here for sure. Am I offering a word against accountability? Am I offering a word against transparency? Am I offering a prescription for backroom deals? No, I don't think so. I, I think I'm just offering, in response to this parable, a word about mercy and about love and about hope. If you're going to be mischievous, be mischievous on the side of mercy. If you're going to break the rules and put it all on the line, break the rules and put it all on the line at the service of love. If you're going to trust something enough to bet your future on it, broken and as imperfect as you are, trust God's desire for reconciliation. And you will be forgiven. The world will be made new and you will find new purpose in life, God's purpose. And this very Jesus, who is kind of God's way of being mischievous with the world, this Jesus will recognize you as one of his own. Amen.